You guys probably don't know this that have been watching at home, but to help control the sound mix for the live stream, they don't actually have any of the band music in the house when we've been recording these last few weeks. So Grant just looks like he's miming. <laughs> and everything else is just like this faint trickle trying to creep across the auditorium. So hearing them and hearing you is awesome. Praise God for that. Uh, amen. <laughs> Would you pray with me and then we will read God's word together. Our Father who is in heaven, we do come today to hallow your name. We await the day that your kingdom comes and your will is done even here as it is in heaven. And though it is not yet that day, still we gather in hope because we see the work that you have begun in your Son is being perfected day by day by the power of your Spirit through what you are accomplishing in our lives and through the ministry that through us you have been pleased to work out to the ends of the earth. And thank you for allowing us to be gathered here today in your name as the Bride of Christ. Pray that you give us attention to your word that our worship corporately around both song and truth and the table would be pleasing to you. This we ask for your glory and in the name of your Son. Amen. Would you, as you are able, take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 5, and would you stand with me this morning as we read John chapter 5, verses 18 to 24, which says this, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, For this reason... Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The words of the living God. Amen. You may be seated. It's been said so many times already this morning, but it is so good to finally be back together. I love our church, and it is just such a joy uh, to see one another, even if not always face-to-face, at least eye-to-eye, if you know what I mean. And it is a great privilege. I'm thankful for the chance that I have to open God's Word for us this morning and to dive in together and see what God has for us. I know some of you kids are missing Sunday school this morning, and that's okay. Uh, I'd be missing Sunday school too, but I've got some projects for you to work on anyway. 
And your first one is this. You can see from our title today, the title of our message is Like Father, Like Son. And you probably picked up on that theme in the passage already. And so I would just want to encourage you kids to think, are you a lot like your mom and your dad in some ways? I'll bet you've already noticed that, that there are things about you that are a lot like your parents. I can guarantee you, your parents have noticed that there are things about you that are a lot like them. But I want you to think and maybe write down or even color a picture of some of the things about you that are most like your mom or your dad and work on that. And while you're doing that, uh, just to everybody, what a week. What a week. Remember waking up multiple times throughout last night because we left our windows open in our room because we'd like to hear the thunder. Just listening to rolling thunder and wind and rain. We've got U.S. astronauts launched from U.S. soil circling the globe on the way to the International Space Station. That's pretty cool. Did you guys watch that launch at all? That was spiffy. I remember it was a kid going to the Science Center and seeing the old Apollo capsule there with switches and knobs everywhere. And then watching the video of these guys sitting in front of three big touch screens. Boop, boop. That's pretty cool. We've also watched cities burn amidst riots with racial tensions boiling over across the country. Last night, my own sister-in-law was texting our family saying, they're destroying my city as they ran through Charleston. World leaders have been trading veiled and open threats and insults back and forth. Much of the world is still crawling and limping along from the COVID-19 situation. And almost every major institution in our country is either in the middle of trying to radically reinvent how it operates or in the middle of dying off. And here we are. Here we are. What are we doing here? With all that's going on in the world... Why are we all kind of sitting here awkwardly spaced out in this room when we could be home doing something else or watching a sermon on a screen? More than just today, why have we done this for so long? Even just right here at Valley Bible Church, why have we gathered every week for decades? The answer, I'm sure, is one Our children have learned in Sunday school as well, and that is that we are here to worship Jesus Christ and to do so together because we are his body, the church. And we do this because we are convinced that Jesus Christ is not simply competition with the pressing issues of the day. No, indeed, he towers over them. He determines them. He sets the boundaries of oceans and pandemics alike. He predestines the future. He sees the past as his handiwork, and he inhabits eternity, and we are his bride. He came into this world so that we could be his individually, collectively, and completely. And this is why we gather, because we must. I know our world needs to hear this truth. I'm pained every time I hear churches singled out as being important for the mental health of the community. 
as critical pieces in the emotional stability of our great states. I wince every time I see a condescending tip of the hat from leaders to the solid community work of faith communities and a desire to partner together to meet the pressing needs of, of the needy and disadvantaged among us. And that doesn't bother me because those things are false. But because it's like saying NASA is a valuable, a very valuable part of our nation solely because they take such pretty pictures. It's true, but it misses the point almost entirely. And I hope we don't follow into the same shallow estimation of what coming together as a church is all about. We aren't here to make ourselves feel better. In fact, some weeks we all need to leave here feeling positively undone. And we aren't here because we can't cope with the harsh realities of life and need our weekly therapy. We are here because of Jesus. As the church, we gather because he is our all in all, and we all in all things are to be his. Church is not a supportive service in a community. I'm not essential. You're not essential. But this, the church, is essential because Jesus is essential. And so it is fitting that today we come to a text that is almost entirely declaring the words of Jesus, defending the glory of Jesus, and demanding the worship of Jesus. And so let's be reminded of who we gather to marvel at each week. And perhaps ironically, we begin then this celebration of Jesus by looking at the condemnation of Jesus. But this is just the preamble. The fun starts when Jesus responds. But first look with me at the condemnation of Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, see some of you kids got your pens and your notes out. That's awesome. Your first blank this morning is one condemnation in verse 18. Begin with me. It says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. What is this reason? Well, this reason is the statement that we left off with, that Jesus made last week when he said, my father is working until now and I myself am working. You remember, he healed a man miraculously who had been sick for 38 years. The Jews only could notice that he happened to do that on the Sabbath. Like, what are you doing breaking the rules? And Jesus says, I'm not breaking the rules, I'm keeping the rules. I'm keeping the rules the exact same way my father in heaven keeps the rules when he does his work on the Sabbath. And they understood exactly what he meant. That is the reason. It's a statement of divine rights and a statement of divine relationship to the Father. Notice, however, though, it doesn't say this is when they decided for the first time to want to kill him. It says they were all the more seeking to kill him. They had already wanted Jesus dead. And we're going to find out in the next phrase the reason they've already wanted him dead and the reason why now that desire is intensified and in moving towards concrete action. Look with me at the next phrase there. It says, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, 
but also is calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the old reason was this. He's a Sabbath breaker. He'd already, I guess, earned that reputation. There's that so-called rabbi running around and he's not doing what we said he's supposed to do. I think he needs to die. That's actually where their hearts were already at. Uh, This is often, by the way, how a campaign of slander and deception starts moving towards violence. When those with at least the perceived moral authority in a culture see their systems of control begin to be weakened, then the teeth come out. When you're simply obnoxious or a nuisance, you just sort of badmouth people. But when things start to change, when your system begins to be threatened, then the sticks and the clubs come out. And so this, they only, to this already burning frustration with Jesus, they only needed to have the fuel of religious zeal. And so for the Jews, there was no crime for them bigger than that of blasphemy, a man claiming to be God. And at the first sign of Jesus claiming equality with God, they say, okay, it's go time. We've got this guy. Their anger boils over. But do you see when they condemn Jesus... They do so having immediately ruled out a very important consideration without ever considering it. Jesus is a rule breaker and a blasphemer blasphemer, unless he is God. And consider the case before them an extensive messianic pedigree. Right tribe, born right place, under all the right conditions. He has a reputation for perfect righteousness, other than that he won't do what the Pharisees want him to do. He has a message of messianic fulfillment. And he's backed all that up with a string of undeniably divine miracles. Do they weigh any of that evidence? Do you see them wrestle with consideration here? No. They have a sentence seeking a charge. This is not a real investigation of the God-man Jesus Christ. This is an attempt to silence a perceived competition with power. And John is highlighting here the case for the divinity of Jesus Christ for the fact that Jesus is God, and he is also highlighting the tragedy of those who should have been best prepared to recognize that case and instead chose to harden their hearts and seek the death of the Messiah. And so as we get ready to jump into Christ's response, I want to just pause here for a couple quick lessons. And the first is this. You cannot just like Jesus. Jesus is not a figure that you can just accept as a general positive influence in your community or in your life. Because Jesus does not give us those categories in which we can view him. You see, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders here were at least right about one thing. The options for Christ were limited. He either was God or he was a scoundrel. And I want to make sure that for the people who call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, nobody who knows us would get the impression that Jesus is kind of a nice guy that we're glad is sort of a part of our life. Or, as is becoming increasingly popular, even among atheists, that 
he had some really transformative ideas that are working their way through Western culture and bringing about a real positive outcome in social dynamics. I kid you not. Listen to a couple lectures on that just this week. Jesus is not somebody you can just like. At the end, we must fall into one of two categories, those who reject him or those who worship him. And secondly, Jesus does not conform to expectations. Jesus does not conform to expectations. This doesn't mean he does things that are against his character or that he's capricious. No, he is very consistent in doing exactly what he has always and will always will to do, but he doesn't seem to check in with us first. And I think we can learn an important lesson from the Jewish leaders in this. Don't approach Jesus telling him how he needs to be God. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's another just flagrant problem I see in our culture is that people sort of skim over the top of what Jesus said, get a general impression of the parts they're sort of comfortable with, and then say, yeah, I'm okay with that, Jesus. And then when all of a sudden they run into a verse or they run into people doing something that they don't expect them to do, they say, wait, no, 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 you can't do that. That's not okay. That's intolerant. That's narrow-minded. That's judgmental. Jesus is not about molding, evolving, adapting, conforming to cultural expectations. He is the unchanging I am. And we will only know what to expect from him if we listen to what he says. Which is something the Jewish leaders failed to do, but we have the opportunity to do this morning because Jesus is now about to open his mouth and say, let me help you understand who I am. This is truly an act of grace, Jesus choosing to respond to their charges at all. He owes them no explanation. But this week we are now going to see four specific comparisons that Jesus makes between himself and his Father. And they demonstrate his right to do what he does and the importance of listening to what he says. And then next week we'll get to look at the implications of some of those things in the context of future resurrection. And then after that, Jesus is going to summon a whole string of witnesses to verify what he is claiming, beginning with John the Baptist and going all the way up through Scripture and the testimony of Moses. That's where Jesus is going in the weeks ahead. But for this morning, four comparisons. Again, if you're taking notes, that's your next blank there. Four comparisons in verses 19 to 22. And it begins by saying this, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Now, this is kind of fun because Jesus isn't going to be like, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you sort of misunderstood me. I just meant like, you know, I just really love God, and I think he really loves me, and I just feel like we're special. (laughs) No, he's going to underscore the relationship with his father that had gotten him in trouble in the first place here, and he's going to double down on that relationship. And he's going to say, let me tell you a little about the work I do. I told you that I'm working just like my father's working. You didn't like that. Let me tell you what I meant by it. And so work, the first comparison he makes between himself and his father is work. In verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. And this verse is the first of three truly, truly statements in this section of John. We'll see one more this morning, and there will be another one that comes up in the weeks ahead. This is how 
Jesus is pulling in his audience and saying, pay attention, what I'm about to say, you can take to the bank. So what is it that he's telling them? Well, basically this, you think I'm claiming to be equal with God. No, not just equal. I'm claiming to be so closely connected to the Father that it's impossible to see any daylight between who we are. It's worse than you thought. The Son and the Father are not to be considered independently of each other in this sense. They are trying to contrast Jesus with the Father and find him to be a blasphemer. And Jesus is forcing them to compare himself with the Father and find them to be not similar, which they thought was bad enough, but one. They were bothered by what Jesus was doing. So Jesus responds by saying, I don't do anything as an independent act of myself. This is Trinitarian Theology 101. Though each person of the Trinity is unique, yet they are one. They do not and cannot operate in total independence of each other. There's only one act in all of eternity and time that could even be considered to come close. And we're going to talk about that later. The Son does only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father is doing, the Son also does. And there's a lot of cultural stuff you could load up on this, their understanding of the Son and the way that He was the representation of the Father, and there's a rich heritage there. But to suffice it to say, Jesus says, me and the Father, when it comes to our work, are inseparable. Because not only do I do the same things, but I do them the exact same way. Hey, kids, I want to try something. Stand up real quick. This will be good just to stretch, get the blood flowing. Stand up real quick, young children. And now I want you to stand as tall as you can, nice and straight, if you'd like to. You don't have to if you're feeling bad. But for those you can, stretch your arms up as high as you can. Clench your fists as tight as you can. Right? Yeah, nice. Excellent. Wow, I got some muscles. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Now, plop back down and consider this. If I asked your dad to do the same thing, he wouldn't because he'd be too embarrassed. But if he did, would you standing and stretching and squeezing as tight as you can be just like your dad? Well, yes and no, right? You might say, well, there's some similarities, but it's not exactly the same. You're not going to stand as tall as your dad. You can't stretch as high as your dad. And as big as those muscles were, they're probably not as strong yet as your dad. Jesus is not saying that his relationship with his father is like a young boy to a grown man. He doesn't say, I play with my toy hammer, looks just like my father using his hammer. He's telling his Jews that he is just as tall as the father. He is just as strong as the father. And when he swings a hammer, it's just as accurate and impressive as when the father does. That did not make them happy. But he was just getting started. It's about to get a lot worse. Secondly, Jesus is going to compare himself with the Father, not only by contrasting the work they do and comparing it, but he's also now going to compare the revelation that the Father and the Son have between each other. We often talk about the way in which God has revealed himself to us. Jesus is going to talk about the way in which the Father reveals himself to the Son. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son 
and shows all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. The second comparison Jesus makes here between himself and the Father is that of revelation. And though one could argue Jesus had some limited knowledge of some of the works of God and is able to reproduce them, okay, well, God showed you how to heal people. Jesus is saying no. The Father, the eternal, unlimited Father, whose high knowledge is unfathomable, whose ways are unsearchable, whose works are impossible to comprehend, I know everything about him. Yikes. Why would the Father show the Son everything? Well, what's the motivation given there? Because the Father loves the Son. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard a lot of talk about the word agape, that self-sacrificial giving love where you do what is best for another, even at personal cost. And that is the word that describes the love of the Father for the Son in every passage of Scripture, except this one. This is the only place in your Bible that you will see the Father's love for the Son described using a different Greek word, phileo, which is the word typically used for family affection. Jesus says, when I call God my Father, it's not the way you Jews think of that term when you talk about God as the Father of Israel, but you view him in the holiness of Mount Sinai, and there's fear, and there's trembling, and it's almost with great trepidation that you would dare to call him your father. My dad loves me because I'm his son. And so when I say he's my father, and you're like, whoa, that sounds a little bit like you're, like you like each other, like you get along, like there's a close relationship there. And Jesus is saying, you have no idea. We are so close that I know everything there is to know about the Father. Can you say that, Jewish leaders? For you kids, maybe you've got a friend who's a little bit like this, somebody that is your best friend, the person you feel like you can talk to the most, if you feel like you just need to have no secrets with that person. But if you're honest, do you really know everything about them? And do they really know everything about you? Father and the Son have such a perfect relationship that there is nothing unknown between them at all. And Jesus is telling the Jews that because of that, there is nothing that the Father does that the Son doesn't know about. Everything Jesus has done in his ministry already has been something he has already shared with the Father, but he also tells them, guess what? There are more things coming that you don't know about yet. Jesus, like I said, is pointing back to the miraculous works that he's been doing, but he's warning the Jews and he's preparing the Jews that something is about to happen. Things are about to be done that are going to result in them marveling. You see that word there? You will marvel. This happens occasionally when people who hate Jesus still have a slack-jawed moment at what he does. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to stun you. 
I'm going to astonish you. And you know what? You have no idea what's, hap- what's going to happen. You don't know what's happening, but you know who does? My father. Because we have that kind of relationship, and you don't. If those who hate Jesus, if his enemies should marvel at the work of Jesus, how much more should we? I hope your Savior is still marvelous in your eyes. When we read of what he has done, when we see what he is doing, even this morning, that we would marvel and be amazed that the Father and the Son through the Spirit are bringing about wonderful things for us even now. The third comparison we see in our text this morning is life. Life, or perhaps more specifically, the ability to give life. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. This one is now sort of almost like jumping categorically to a whole new level. There is no question now that Jesus is making a very radical and a very bold statement. There's a lot of, he's being very specific in this bold claim of his. A rabbi who lived about a hundred years after Jesus sort of summarized rabbinic teaching that there are three keys that God has that he does not give to men. There are three doors we're never allowed to open. Three keys God has that he doesn't give to men. One, the key to the rain. We saw God still has that key last night. The key to the womb. And three, the key to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus here is saying, I have that key right here on my key ring. For you kids this morning, how many of you have ever had a pet die? You had the, yeah, that's sad. Or perhaps even more seriously, I know many of you have probably had someone that you know you knew and you loved die. Maybe your your grandparents have passed away. It's often said death is the hardest part of life. It feels so final, like that thick concrete wall that we can't see through, we can't we can't cross. Nobody on earth can go to a grave and tell people to not be dead anymore. But there is one being in the universe who is able to make even the dead come alive. For you kids this morning, who is it? Yell it out. Jesus. Jesus. Exactly. God, the Father, and in this verse, God, the Son, Jesus Christ. This is pretty impressive. The Father was already known to be the one who could roll back death and to make life come where it had not been before. There are examples of that in the Old Testament. In the extraordinary case of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, there were even human agents that God would occasionally use to be part of the process of bringing people back from the dead. But notice, Jesus isn't simply saying, I'm like Elijah, where the Father can raise the dead through me. He says, no, I raise the dead myself. Which dead? Whichever ones I want to. He claims both the power and the right to choose who comes back from the grave. There is deep theology in these waters. 
And I encourage you guys to dive in and study. See how the will of God works in such a way that the Father chooses, the Son chooses, and yet the choice is the same for both. How the sovereignty of God is working here too. There's nobody else in the universe in the life business. God has no competition. There are no external standards that he is subject to. All the power to choose, all the power to act, and alone in that. Jesus says, I can bring the dead back whenever I want to, for whomever I want to. At this point, I would imagine the Jewish leaders he's speaking with are literally growing faint. Nobody talks like this. I don't even think most of the raving madmen they've encountered in life would be so audacious. But Jesus is not babbling like a fool. He is speaking with calm authority. And he's still not done yet. One more comparison. Look with me at judgment in verse 22, our last comparison this morning. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he... I just want to stop here for a second because that's where our culture wants to stop, right? See, God doesn't judge. No, he has given all judgment to the Son. It's perhaps the most profound and most sobering of all the comparisons Christ is making. Jesus is not only the one who gives life to whomever he wishes, he is also the one who pronounces judgment on whomever he wishes. The Jewish leaders were incensed when Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Do you remember that story? Who is this who claims to forgive sins? They should have been terrified. Not that Jesus would forgive sins, but that perhaps he would exercise his right not to. Do you see the progression here, how Jesus is filling out their understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son? You're alarmed because I said I'm doing the work of my Father. You're not alarmed enough. I'm doing the very works of God the Father in the very same way as God the Father. There's no limit to what I can do, just as there is no limit to the Father, because in our loving relationship, there are no secrets between us, and all that the Father does, I do, including some things coming up that you can't imagine, and that will, unlike the clickbait on the Internet, actually blow your mind. But wait, there's more. My power isn't limited to healing the sick and mending the lame. I have power over life and death itself and a power that is up to my own discretion. Even the Father does not tell me what to do, for we are one. Which brings us to the last point. You who dare seek to kill me are attacking the judge of the earth and one who holds the right to grant entrance into heaven or condemn to eternal hell. Think they were awake at that point? We should be too. What does all this mean for us? How should we apply it to our lives? And normally this would be where I put up the lesson slide and we would go through some lessons. But in this case, Jesus decided to preach the application himself. So I defer. <laughs> Two conclusions, your last point this morning. Two conclusions. How should we respond to such a bold comparison between the Father and the Son? And the first is this, honor. Honor. Look at verse 23. 
so that this is how my relationship with the Father works. This is what we do. Why? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Our regard for God the Father must be our regard for God the Son. You cannot disrespect one without disrespecting the other. The main sense of honor means to put a value on something. And so it grew to mean in the relational context, it was a word used to describe anything you had a high valuation of, a high regard for. And the Father and the Son operate in such a way that it is wrong to regard either one as more high or more highly than the other. If you acknowledge God, you must acknowledge the Son exactly as you would the Father. For you children this morning, I want to encourage you with maybe a new thought for some of you. You start learning to honor God by learning to honor your parents. Not just obeying and doing what you're told. Well, here's the difference, right? You need to obey your parents too. But honoring them, what does that mean? Not only doing what they say because they make you, but valuing them. Valuing them. They are God's gift to you. And some of you here, maybe here with parents or other gardens who are fulfilling that role in your life, value them. Unlike God, they're not always right. But training our hearts to value our earthly parents trains our hearts how to value God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for all of us, in everything we do, we want to demonstrate how much we value God. And this morning, we're reminded of that in our corporate gathering together. And hear me carefully, because I wish to place no burden on those who are not with us this morning because of health concerns, because of convictions of conscience, there's no judgment for that. No member of Valley Bible Church answers to me or to any other man on such decisions. However, we must recognize that watching a service over the internet or only attending when it doesn't interfere with fishing or sports or sleeping in as much as we want, that would be a poor display of honor for our king, wouldn't it? We do not want to tip the hat to Jesus when it's convenient. We want to honor Jesus. And I hope this morning for those of you who are gathered here and for those worshiping in sincerity at home that we take the opportunity to evaluate our priorities in life and in the unique way that this pandemic has actually provided. Consider this. We've built patterns of life. We've set priorities. We've got activities. We've got all these things that are going on and have been established in our life. And God just reached down and said, Reset. If you were ever in a position in life where you're like, man, there's just so much going on, things are so busy and so crazy, I'm trying to figure out how to worship God and lead my family, I'm trying to figure out how to be a good worker, I'm trying to figure out how to do all these things that God wants me to do, there's just not enough time to think. God's like, okay, there you go. So let's think. As things begin to unlock, how can we rebuild, reestablish the practical daily patterns of our lives built around this controlling thought, Jesus Christ 
is more valuable than anything else. What a great opportunity. Secondly, this morning, our last application is this. Believe. Believe. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. To understand the Father and the Son and who they are demands that we value them more than everything else in the world, but simply having a high regard for Jesus isn't enough. We must both listen and value and obey. What Jesus says we need to accept is coming from both the Father and the Son, and what we hear we must believe as being absolutely true. And what a blessing that Jesus, look at this, the judge of the earth, who has the right to choose who he wants to let live and who he doesn't, has said, here's the criteria I have chosen for those who live. Those who will simply listen to what I'm telling you. If you will simply listen to what I'm telling you and believe it, you have life. You have life. No future judgment coming from the judge of all the earth. And indeed, so profound is this work of Christ that the one who believes is said to have already passed out of death and into life. But we must make sure we do not think for a second that this is a cheap blessing for God to grant. Unlike our culture printing money for quantitative easing or borrowing trillions for stimulus checks and hoping our great-grandkids can afford it all, God never writes a check he hasn't already secured in full. When the Son grants us life, where does that life come from? From Him. How do we get it? Well, Jesus told us if we're willing to listen. He told us on that hallowed night before his death, when he stood before his sinful but beloved disciples and figuratively before the sinful but beloved world and explained to them the price of resurrection by picking up a simple piece of bread and a simple cup. We never want to forget the message he gave us that night. For believing in it is still the only way to pass from death into life. To bring us together, finally again, in remembrance of the work of the Son and the Father and the life it brought about, I would like to invite our dear Pastor Ben to come and lead us this morning in observing the Lord's table. And let me just close by saying... It's a privilege to be a pastor.